1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we come expectantly. We come with ears that are perked up and ready to hear. We come with hearts that are prepared and ready to obey. We come with a hope that you will increase our faith and our knowledge of you. That out of love we will live out our faith in this dark world, in this fallen world. And through that we will be a light for you. Especially of the hope that we have in Christ that goes beyond this life into eternity. Work in our hearts, we pray, Spirit of God. Amen. Almost 60 years ago, um, R&B singer Sam Cooke recorded one of the most important songs of the civil rights era. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine now calls A Change Is Gonna Come one one of the greatest songs of all time. The song was a a significant departure from Cook's other songs that had been successful on the pop charts, uh, like You Send Me was one of them. It it was the first time that Cook addressed uh, social problems in a direct and explicit way. And as a black artist who had crossed over from gospel to pop in 1963, Sam Cooke's success had not come without a lot, a lot of hard work. And there was a concern that this song, A Change Is Gonna Come, with its emphasis on social problems, that it would alienate his new audience. But he also couldn't ignore the moral outrage that was right in front of him. The song was a return to his gospel roots. But instead of building on faith, it injected a sense of doubt that that many felt who didn't have faith to turn to or to rest upon. One of the lines in the song says, "It's, It's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die because I don't know what's up there beyond the sky. The song was written within a month or two after he and his band were turned away from a whites-only hotel in in Shreveport, Louisiana. The song was released 
few months after Sam Cooke unexpectedly died. Went on to become one of the anthems of the civil rights movement, tapping into the despair and the anger and the frustrations of many black Americans that they felt in the context of persistent racism. But yet it did so in a hopeful tune. Cook seemed to see that the tide was beginning to change by the early to mid-60s in American race relations. So there is a self-assured tone in the song. Cook didn't hope that a change was going to come. He knew it would. If I were to write a song about the passage that we are in today, I don't think I could find a better title than the song that Sam Cooke wrote called A Change is Going to Come. It wouldn't speak to the struggles faced by many black Americans in the face of racism, but it would speak to the struggles that all Christians face as we, as we journey through this fallen world to our future and eternal home. It would look with confidence to Christ, the captain of our faith, our victorious Savior who has destroyed death, conquered sin, fulfilled the law for us. And it would speak of the coming change that is going to come. It's going to come to all of us, both the living and the dead. And I don't know if that song's ever going to be written, but I know that that would be the perfect title for it. It would also make a good title for a sermon, one that the Corinthians desperately needed to hear. Because the Corinthians were confused about the nature of their own resurrection. And for that reason, Paul sought to correct their confusion by including in this letter to them what we now know as chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. In the first 34 verses, Paul began with what was not in confusion, which was the resurrection of Christ. And, and then from that showed them that the dead will also be raised. If Christ was raised, so will the dead be raised. And then in verse 35, Paul poses the question that was really at the heart of their confusion. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? See, the Corinthians, they were right to question how probable is it to spend an eternity in our present bodies? However, that is not a cause to assume, though, that we will not have bodies at all, which was what they were assuming. We can't spend eternity in these bodies, so we must not, therefore, have bodies in the resurrection. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. The same creative power that transforms the seed into a plant is going to transform our present bodies into those suitable for the world to come. Our resurrection bodies, they'll be unlike anything known to us on earth. Our perishable, weak, natural bodies that increasingly shame us the older we get and the weaker that we get, they will be transformed into bodies that are imperishable. And gloriously powerful for an eternity of serving and glorifying the Lord. Christ is our example in this. 
his body was a natural body that was suitable for all his purposes as the glorious Son of God. Christ's body, risen from the dead, is a physical body. Right? He was recognized by his disciples, scars and all. He even ate food. But he was no longer... And I, I always praise God for that. I love food. And we're going to eat food. I can't even begin to think about how wonderful that's going to be to be able to, to just sit and fellowship and, and enjoy good food together and yet not have any ill effects ever come from it. Just good food and good fellowship as we enjoy Christ at His table with one another. But the risen Christ was no longer subject to the limitations that He had in His body before He went into the tomb. His resurrection body then is the prototype for ours. Meaning that our bodies, it will have the same power and the same abilities as Christ with which we can do all that God will ask of us in the eternal ages to come. So Paul now brings the argument here for the future bodily resurrection of believers. He brings it to a conclusion and he does so I would have to say with a magnificent crescendo. His initial question was focused on the dead being raised, right? How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come, right? How are the dead raised, he says. What kind of body do they, the dead, come with? That was the initial question. And the answer, as we've covered, it's a transformed body. It's a body that's imperishable, that's immortal. But now his emphasis is not just on the necessity of the resurrection, but it's on the necessity of transformation. Not that he's focused already on the necessity of the resurrection. Now he's focusing on the necessity of transformation. Paul tells the Corinthians something that they did not know because they could not know it. It was a mystery that had to be revealed. And Paul reveals to them that transformation, it will happen, but not just to those resurrected from the dead. It will happen to the living as well. Those who are alive at Christ's return, they will be instantly transformed. And what a shock this must have been to those Corinthians who doubted any future body at all. But see, our hope is not only the future. The one who will put an end to death at his return, well, he has already, through his death and his resurrection, triumphed in our behalf over sin and over the law. And thanks be to God, Paul says, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a future hope in Christ's victory that should motivate us Today, in our present ministry, to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So the, the title of this sermon this morning is Christ's Triumphant Transformation of Believers. Christ's Triumphant Transformation of Believers. And what we'll see here in these last 
eight verses of chapter 15 is how at Christ's return, all believers will be fundamentally transformed and Christ's triumph over sin and death will be final. At Christ's return, all believers will be fundamentally transformed and Christ's triumph over sin and death will be final. You know, everybody loves to be on the winning team. If you're a Christian, you are on the winning team. It may not seem that way in the cultural battles that we see going on around us and on the horizon we can see other battles forming. It may not seem like you're on the winning team, but when that last trumpet blows, you will realize that you have been set apart for a future, a a glorious future, with our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And on that day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Our victory, this victory that we have presently, this victory that we have before us, it was not won by us. It was won for us by our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Paul now, he explains three glorious results of his death and his resurrection to anticipate and to rejoice in. First, Christ will fundamentally transform all believers. Second, Christ will finally destroy death. And thirdly, Christ has fully conquered sin and the law. These are things that we can anticipate and also rejoice in right now. The truths in these verses... They will not only give us a hope for a glorious future in Christ, but should give us much needed encouragement in our present walks with Christ. So let's look at our text now, beginning in verse 50. Paul here, he shifts his emphasis, as I said, from the necessity of the resurrection to the necessity of our transformation. So our present earthly bodies, they are completely incompatible with our future heavenly existence. So with our eyes firmly fixed on that day when Christ returns for his people, Paul authoritatively states that Christ, first of all, Christ will fundamentally transform all believers. That's our first point. Christ will fundamentally transform All believers. And first, what he's going to do, Christ will alter the present form of our bodies. Christ will alter the present form of our bodies. Verse 50, he says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So those amongst the Corinthians who have objected to the bodily resurrection of believers, they've done so believing that the human body is unfit for a heavenly existence. And so in verse 50, Paul is basically agreeing with them. He's saying, you know what, guys, you're right. The body in its present physical form, it cannot inherit the heavenly existence that awaits us. So as he talked about in just back in verses 47 to 49, he says there is an earthy and there is a heavenly. So 
We bear Adam's earthy image now, just as Christ himself once did. And then Paul interestingly describes us, he describes us here as consisting, if you'll notice here, of, in verse 50, he says, he, he calls, uh, he sums up what we are in our physical existence. He says, we are flesh and blood. And because this is what we are, because we are flesh and blood, he says, he equates that we are perishable. We are subject to weakness, death, decay. You know, it's amazing what a simple blood test can tell a doctor about your health. Some blood tests can help your doctor determine how different organs in your body are working. (laughs) Examples of organs whose malfunctions can be visible in just a simple blood test can be your thyroid, your liver, your kidneys. Your doctor can also use blood tests to search for markers of diseases and health conditions such as diabetes, HIV, anemia, cancer, and coronary heart disease. Even if a person doesn't have heart disease, a blood test can show whether they may be at risk of developing this condition. Other blood tests can indicate whether the medications that you're taking are working properly or assess if your blood is clotting properly or not. But see, long before scientists understood the complex and extraordinary life-sustaining properties of blood, the Bible informed us that the life of all flesh is its blood. The life of all flesh is its blood. We see from the Old Testament that that blood was not only a metaphor or a symbol for life, it was equivalent to life itself. In, in, in most occurrences where blood was shed in Scripture, it meant that the life had ended. To remove blood is to terminate life. And we see the significance of blood in the sacrifices of, of animals in the sacrificial system. God forbid, he said, you will not eat the blood like it's common food. It belonged to God, who was the giver of life. And it was to be drained and then offered to Him on the altar. It represented life. And this is how God prescribed atonement was to be made. It was to be made by a substitution. The blood here was the critical element. The blood of the guiltless substitute was offered as payment for the guilty. But as we also know, the blood of bulls and of goats could never atone for our sins. I feel like this cough is just waiting to come out. I'm going to blow the speakers when I, when I cough. I'm trying to keep it at bay here. So the blood of bulls and goats were never meant to atone for our sins. They were never meant to do anything but to picture what God was going to do in the sending of His Son. We're told this many places. Hebrews 2.14 is one of them. He says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He, Christ, He Himself likewise also partook of flesh and blood. To partook of the same. That, why? Through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death. That is the devil. So Christ shared in flesh and blood so that He could shed 
His blood for us. He could give His life is the idea. And He could do so in our place and for our atonement. See, this is the, this is the full meaning of life being in the blood. Physical life is in the blood. Eternal life is in Christ's blood. Physical life is dependent on the circulation of blood. Spiritual life is possible only by the shedding of Christ's blood. See, the cost of our salvation, it was far, far greater than we could ever afford to pay. Christ had to pay it for us. And as God's guiltless sacrifice, He secured it through us, through the shedding of His blood, through His death. That is what is pictured. It's not the blood itself. It's what is pictured by the shedding of that blood. His death. Now in the life to come, the life that Paul is putting out before us, there's no more need for blood. The purpose of blood was to stain life in these earthly bodies. By its shedding, to picture the death of the body. And so, God's purpose for blood is complete. So, so bodies that consist of flesh and blood, he says, they can't inherit the kingdom of God. Because such a body is perishable. It can die. Interesting observation just an observation, but it's, it's kind of interesting and it's worth noting. When Jesus described His resurrection body in Luke 24, when He was, trying to, he was showing His disciples that it was Him, He said in Luke 24, 39, He said, See my hands and my feet, that it is I Myself. Touch Me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. As you see that I have. He makes no mention of blood. Now you can't prove anything by the absence of his mentioning of, of, of blood. But he doesn't include talking about his resurrection body as flesh and blood. He calls it flesh and bones. Now, I'm not saying this is definitive, but it's certainly interesting. No mention of blood. See, God made us perishable beings of flesh and blood. So that Christ could become like us and shed His blood for us and therefore through that give us eternal life. But these bodies of flesh and blood, they're incompatible with heavenly life because they're perishable. And so Christ will alter them from their present form, what we now have, to a body that is suitable for life in God's kingdom. So up to this point, the discussion is... The, Paul's discussion has been about resurrection from the dead. But Paul's point is that the body in its present form, it cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The body is susceptible. It's susceptible to corruption. Dead or alive, it's, it's going to be corruptible. It cannot inherit what is incorruptible. And so it would certainly seem that life after death would likely be an immaterial existence. But Paul holds up his hands. Right? And he says now in verse 51, it's, think, of, think of a man who's about to reveal something. He goes, he goes, behold. It's kind of the idea. Ah, 
I know what you're thinking. These bodies can't inherit the incorruptible. They're perishable. Ah, but behold. So he's got our attention here. Now, he may not have been that dramatic. He was writing. He wasn't standing before them. But think about when you... What do you... What do you how do you respond when you hear the word behold? If someone says that when they want to draw your attention to something that's, that's unexpected. The word means look. And what Paul wants us to behold is the unveiling of how what is seemingly impossible will happen. Behold, I tell you, a mystery. You, you know this, a mystery in the Bible. It's not a murder mystery or anything like that. A mystery in the Bible, it, it does not refer to what is currently hidden, but to what was once hidden and now, and not only hidden, but undiscoverable by human methods, but has now been divinely revealed through Christ. That's a mystery when you see that in the Bible. That's what it's talking about. Once hidden and undiscoverable, but now divinely revealed through Christ. So at the beginning of this letter in Corinthians, Paul reminded the Corinthians that he came to them speaking God's wisdom. He says, in a mystery. He called it the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers understood. And that mystery that Paul revealed, it was he called it the testimony of God. That Jesus Christ, whom the rulers of this age had crucified, well, this one that they had crucified was none other than the Lord of glory. See, the gospel of a crucified Savior, that would never, ever, in a million years, in a trillion years, it would never come to the mind of man. See, man naturally thinks that they'll get to heaven by their works. They'll be, they'll be good enough. They'll do enough good. The world also universally views Christ as weak. The cross as foolishness. See, God had to reveal. He had to reveal that there's, there's none righteous before God. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Right? There are no exceptions. No one will ever be acceptable to God by their own righteousness. And he keeps adding that word none. Not even one. And he's emphasizing this because certainly there's somebody here who's hearing this right now who's thinking... In some way, they're thinking, well, I can make it to heaven by being good. They'll hear me say, there's none righteous, not even one. And I'll ask, how will you get to heaven? And they'll say, well, it's by being good enough. There's none righteous, not even one. You are not the exception. How are we then to escape condemnation? How are we to ever hope to be justified in God's sight? God sent His Son. That's how. Christ obeyed in your place. Christ died in your place. Christ was raised 
from the dead on your behalf. He took your sins upon Himself. He died for them. And He will give you His own righteousness by which you will be justified. It's not yours. It's Christ's. He took your sin and He gave you His righteousness. See, that's what the cross was all about. It wasn't in weakness that He was crucified. It was God's gracious, predetermined plan to save those who could never save themselves. And yet the strong and the wise of the world, they're going to reject this good news. And they're going to be brought to shame. While those that the world deems lowly and despised and foolish receive it and are saved. Who would have thought of such a gospel? Not man. Man would have made himself the Savior so that he can boast about it. And only God would come up with a gospel that debases man. Only God would come up with a Savior who willingly sacrifices Himself to save those who hate Him. God has revealed it to sinners who are helpless to save themselves so that they can be saved from the penalty of their sins. It's the gospel of a crucified Savior. It's the only truly good news for sinners like you and me. And it's what we preach here. And when you repent, and when you put your faith in His Son, then and only then will God save you. But He will. And so just as the mystery of the gospel had to be revealed, so did the mystery that Christ will fundamentally transform all believers, not just those He raises from the dead, but those who are living. And this is my second point. Christ will change both the living and the dead. Christ will change both the living and the dead. So his focus, Paul's focus up to this point, the transformation of the resurrected from the dead. So does that mean that we must first die in order to be transformed? And Paul's answer to that question is the rest of the verse. In verse 51, he says, he says, here's the mystery being revealed. Here's what was hidden and undiscoverable that I'm now telling you. We will not all sleep. be changed. Now all here, he's speaking to Christians, right? He's not, it's not all those who believe in Christ will die. It's uh, not all those who believe in Christ, he's saying, will die, but they will all be changed. All Christians will be changed. Okay? So when is this supposed to happen? That that, uh, there will be this transformation Of those who have not died, but have believed in Christ. He says, at the last trumpet. At the last trumpet. This signals the end. The transformation of believers will happen, first of all, it will happen at the end. Um, There are places in Scripture that we have a trumpet uh, being put forward as signaling an end to something. In Jeremiah 51, a trumpet signals the last battle. In Joel chapter 2, it warns of the approaching day of judgment. 
in Zechariah 9, it announces the coming of the Lord. In Isaiah 27, a trumpet summons God's people who are scattered throughout the world. So many verses, though, they connect the resurrection with the end of the age when Christ returns. For example, let's turn to, keep your finger here, turn to Daniel 12. Right after Ezekiel and before Hosea. Daniel chapter 12. And then the very last verse, verse 13. Daniel 12, verse 13 says, But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion. When? At the end of the age. Now in John chapter 6, verse 40, Christ declares that the resurrection will happen on the last day. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. And it's this, uh, it is Paul who, who specifies the meaning even further uh, back in 15. Look back at uh, verses 22 of 1 Corinthians 15. Jump back there. Paul is, is specifying the meaning even further. He says in 15.22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. <coughs> Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom of, God, of the God and Father, when he ha, or to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. So Paul here is uh, is saying that there will be a last trumpet, and it will sound at the end when Christ returns, and at that time he says the dead will be raised. So Paul's focused here. It's not to, he, his focus is not to detail all the events that are going to happen at the return of Christ. His focus, his purpose here in talking about the end is simply to declare that the bodies of both the living and the dead must be transformed. And, and just as God, uh, uh, and, uh, and just as God by his creative power, he changes that grain of wheat into a, a stalk of wheat, right? The tiny little seed becomes this, this tall stalk of grain, and it does so by God's power. In the same way, He's going to transform our mortal and corruptible bodies into an incorruptible and immortal form. And it's only the foolish who doubt that God can do this. And so Paul says this is going to happen at the end, and he says, secondly, that He will transform us in a moment. It'll be at the end... And it will be in a moment, he says in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The word here for moment is the word atomos. You can hear what word we get from that tension. Atom, 
Adam. Literally, the word, though, means uncut. How do these two get associated? Why do we get the word Adam from a word that actually means uncut, indivisible? It's because the Adam was believed to be the smallest particle and too small to be even divided. And so it was used to refer to that which was indivisible. And Paul is saying that that the amount of time that it will take... (coughs) Excuse me. Trying to creep up on me. The amount of time that it will take for us to be transformed is so small, it can't even be divided. We might say in a split second, right? I I never thought of it until I was writing this out. It's not just a second. (laughs) It's a split second. It's even smaller than a second. The idea, though, is just it's instantaneous. It's instantaneous. And imagine what an experience this is going to be for those believers who are alive. Are we that generation I have no idea, and neither do you. We, I think every generation has thought maybe we're that generation. The point isn't whether or not we're that generation. The point is, is are you living in light of Christ's return? That's the point. Keep that in mind. Keep that on your focus, and you'll be living as you should be living. Whether or not you are alive at Christ's return doesn't matter. It will be an amazing experience, though, if we are alive at Christ's return. So just imagine you're, if this is you, right? If this is the generation when this happens, there you are. You're, you're, you might be stretching out like I'm often doing. I'm like stretching out some, some stiff muscle, some, some sore muscle, or maybe you have a headache. You know, you didn't get your coffee. Or maybe you struggle with migraines or something like that. Or maybe it's at the end of the day and you're tired. You've been up since dawn and... And you're just feeling it. You didn't sleep that well. You're tired. Or maybe cancer is spreading throughout your body and you know it. And you know your days are numbered. But then suddenly, whatever state you may be in, you hear this clear, piercing sound of a trumpet blast. Maybe then at that moment your body is then lifted, lifted up as if you are weightless and you begin traveling through the sky and you're approaching the Lord and along with millions of other Christians from all over the world, the risen and exalted Christ is increasingly filling your vision as you get closer and closer to Him. In one moment, your body is natural, corruptible, tired, achy, cancer-ridden, dying. And then in the time it takes you to blink, in the twinkling of an eye, your body is transformed into a form that is supernatural, and incorruptible and immortal. It's not just 
the living who will be transformed, but also all believers of all time who have died. He says, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we collectively will be changed. What's interesting here is is the similarity of what Paul says here to another passage we're quite familiar with, much like this one. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 13. And you'll hear the similarities. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Remember, he said, we will not all sleep. So that you will not grieve as do the rest of those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, he ties it to the resurrection, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. These are the dead. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. This comes from God. This revelation from God. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a a shout, with the voice of the archangel, perhaps it And he says, and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always, shall always be with the Lord. Jesus also spoke about the resurrection in John chapter 5. He said, do not marvel For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who commit the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And so when we put all this together, we have believers who have died. And their bodies are in tombs. They're in the ground. They're cremated. They're whatever and wherever. They have returned to dust. But Jesus says that he'll call them forth from wherever they are. And at the same time, Paul says that Jesus will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, I'll probably just end with this, but I think this is a good place to talk just briefly about what happens when a person dies. Paul refers to those who have died, he says, calls them those who have fallen asleep. Now, some take this to mean that that after a person dies, his or her soul sleeps until the resurrection and judgment. Now, the term asleep, it, it certainly suggests that, but the rest of Scripture makes it clear that is not the case. See, when believers die... They are absent from their bodies and they are immediately present with the Lord. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, he says that his preference would be to be absent from the body, to be at home with the Lord. For unbelievers, though, death means something far different. It means judgment. It means hell. 
Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Now, prior to the resurrection, though, believers, where are they? Well, they're in what we can just simply describe as a temporary heaven. Jesus referred to this as paradise when he was speaking to the thief on the cross. Unbelievers are in a temporary place also. It's a temporary hell. It's referred to in Revelation as Hades. Revelations 20 verse 13 says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. So in the descriptions that we find in Scripture of paradise and of Hades, in neither place are people sleeping. They're not unconscious, awaiting something to come. They are alive, and they are conscious. We could say that a person's body, maybe, is sleeping, but their soul is very much alive. At the resurrection, the body is raised, awakened, I guess we could say, and then transformed into an everlasting body that they will possess for all eternity, whether in heaven or in hell. Now, there is an idea called soul sleep. The idea is that you are unconscious until the resurrection. The idea of soul sleep... It's believed by certain groups, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists. That's not biblical. That idea that you are unconscious until the resurrection is not biblical. Believers are at rest in paradise. Unbelievers are in torment in Hades. Jesus spoke of an unbelieving man who died. He went to Hades. This is in Luke 16. It says, in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment. He cried out. He said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. I am in agony in this flame. See, one minute after you breathe your last, you will enter into what will be true of you forever. Rest or torment. And don't scoff at this. This is told to you so that you can flee to Christ while you can. Because there is no change after your breath. Because not only is soul sleep a lie, so is reincarnation. Or any other version of that that says you've got a second chance. There is no returning from the dead for a second chance. If that is what you are hoping for, you are only lying to yourself. Your final eternal destination is either heaven or hell, and it is based entirely on whether in your one and only lifetime you trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Now, there's much more to be said in this chapter, but I'll have to stop here or else I'll get you angry at me for making you late for lunch. So let's pray, and then we'll resume this next week. Father, these are sobering words in the midst of the hope that we have in your Son of a glorious future. There is equally an opposite, a horrendous reality 
that those who have not trusted in Christ must face. Their eternal destiny is at stake in who they say Jesus is. Is he just a man? Is he just a historical figure? Is he misunderstood? If he's any of those things, if he's not important, if he's not someone worth surrendering your life to, then the destiny is hell. And yet you have put preachers on this earth and you have given the gift of evangelism and called all believers to evangelize to spread this warning. Oh God, if there's any here today who don't know Christ and whose future right now, if they were to die, would be an eternal torment in hell. Oh God, would you turn them from it? Would you use the fear of death that is in all of us as you once used it in me to turn our eyes to Christ? He's not just a rescuer from hell. Oh, He's a glorious satisfier of our souls. Oh, but if it takes the fear of hell to turn their eyes to Jesus, would you do that? To flee to Christ. He's a rock and He's a refuge from the just and holy wrath of God. In Him is found the love of God. Run to Him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.